Good morning. Uh, This morning's sermon text comes from Exodus chapter 14. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he persuaded or he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what you said to you in Egypt? Or in sorry, in Egypt, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent." Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord God, I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other at all, all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back, by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and drew the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled, fled into it, the Lord drew the Egyptians into the midst of the sea, The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, 
And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the word of the Lord. morning again to everyone. It's good to be back here with you this week. Uh, maybe some of you weren't here last week, and so you're wondering, who is this fellow and why is he here? Uh, my name is Wes Baker. I'm a missionary in northern Peru in the city of Trujillo. I'm here with my wife, Jamie, and two of our daughters, Millie and Olivia. Um, I'm also that guy that got uh, had the privilege of working with Josh Eby for several years, so... Uh, when the Ebies were in Peru, uh, we were working together down there. And he still likes me after all of that, too. So, um, This is a fascinating passage. Um, I mean, the book of Exodus is filled with wonderful stories. We're all familiar with, with these stories. But I, I'm, I don't think any of them are, are more famous and, and greater stories than this one before us. Uh, I hope we, we can see some interesting things here this morning about the Lord's salvation of his people, about his great power to save his people, but also, this is, this is the key thing that I hope we can uh, see here in this passage and catch the, the connection, that this is not just about the salvation of God's people, but it's about their salvation for a purpose, to participate with him in his mission. Now, as a missionary, you knew I had to say that. But I think it's in the text here, too. Um, when, when I think back on uh, experiences in, in, in my life, not that I remember this one, but I suspect that the most traumatic experience in my life was probably at about two years of age. Again, I don't have recollection of this. But it was probably about two year, at about two years of age when people started uh, informing me that I wasn't the center of the universe. Uh, perhaps you've had that experience too. Uh, I say it was probably a, a traumatic experience for me. I imagine that because I, as I continue to bump up against and crash up against that same truth 50 years later, that truth that I'm not, the center of the universe, uh, it's still painful. And so I, I suspect that it was pretty traumatic for me at, at that time as well. And I suspect that this is true of you. There's a little bit of, of narcissism in every single one of us. We just from the earliest ages, we think we are the center of the universe. We think that it's all about us. And in fact, that even comes uh, we, we see that it, sometimes in the way that we as Christians think about the gospel, the way that we approach the gospel, the way that we tell the gospel to others. We tend to describe the gospel or relate the gospel as if it were only a story about individuals and how the individual can be rescued from God's wrath. And of course it involves all of that, but it's but we tend to tell it as if it only involved the individual, that it's all about what the individual can, can get out of it. As Americans, 
we tend, and not just Christians, but as, as Americans, we tend to think that if God exists, if he really does exist, then the purpose of his existence is to rescue me and to make me eternally happy in a narcissistic heaven. That's the way that Americans in general tend to think about it. If God really exists, then his purpose for existence is all about me. It's about what he can do for me. Now, there's a grain of truth in all of that. There's, there's an important truth in all of that. The gospel does bring deep and abiding and personal and eternal joy to all of those who believe it. It does bring all of that. And in fact, last week we talked about that a little bit. We talked about how the gospel comes and the gospel is what gives us new purpose in life. The gospel is what creates a new future for us. The gospel is, a, is what makes clear for us what our calling is in life. But what I'd like to suggest to you this morning is, and I think we'll see it, see it in this passage here, is that no one can experience the deep reality. No one can experience the deep reality of being rescued by God without also at the same time embracing the call by God to be a part of his rescue operation for the world. The gospel's not just about what I get from God. It's also connected intimately to my calling, the church's calling to be part of God's rescue operation for the world. Think of this, for example, in the ministry of our Lord Jesus. If we, we think of all of the moments in, in the history of Jesus' three-year, three-and-a-half-year earthly ministry, one of the, the paradigm examples of how Jesus related to his Father and how he experienced this uh, intimate communion with his Father, we see that classically in his baptism. Jesus is standing in the water. The heavens are opened. The Spirit of God descends in the form of a dove over Jesus. And he hears that voice of his father. How would you like to hear the voice of the father audibly saying what he said to Jesus? He said, you are my son, the beloved one. In you I am well pleased. How would you like to hear that as an audible voice of the father coming to you personally, individually, in saying, you are my beloved son or daughter, and in you I am well pleased. If we look a little more closely at this passage, however, at the, the, the story about Jesus' baptism, one of the things that we see there, first, when, when the father says to him, you are my son, we're supposed to, be, to hear echoes of other passages in the Old Testament, and one of the primary passages that we're supposed to hear is from Psalm number 2. In Psalm 2, that's where the father speaks to his son, and he says, you are my son. This day I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance, 
and the ends of the earth as your possession. Now notice there how the idea of, of Jesus being God's son and the intimacy of that relationship is also connected to the idea of Jesus receiving the nations as his inheritance. Jesus' rescue operation to reclaim the nations from the grips of the evil one. And so Jesus hears this proclamation, this declaration to him by the Father, you are my beloved son. And no doubt he is, he is thinking about Psalm 2 and he is thinking about the promise that the Father made to his son to give him the nations. But it's immediately after that in all three of the synoptic gospels, the first three gospels, in all three of them, the Spirit, uh, the, the, uh, the Spirit drives him out into the desert where he is tempted by the devil for 40 days. And the climax of that temptation by the devil is where Satan comes to him and says, yeah, we, we heard those words from your father about you being the beloved son and all of that stuff. And of course... He, what's implicit there is that he's promising to give you all the nations as your inheritance. But he wants you to do it the hard way. He wants you to receive all of the nations as your inheritance on the other side of the cross, on the other side of suffering and pain and anguish and giving of yourself. I'm offering you something a lot easier. If you just fall down and worship me, I'll give you all of these nations. Just worship me and you can have them the easy way. Notice that Jesus' baptism, Jesus's, the, the, the moment where the intimacy of his relationship with his Father is declared for all to hear, it's at that moment that the nature of his mission is also laid out. It's a mission to go to the cross on behalf of the world to reclaim the nations as his inheritance. That's what, that's from the New Testament, but that's what I think if we listen carefully to the text that we read this morning in Exodus, that's what we will see here as well. Essentially, what Jesus is calling you and me, what he's calling us to, he's, he's telling us, he's telling you that he wants you to entrust your life to him. And the, the very last, uh, I think it's the last verse of the whole chapter, talks about how it says, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord. Literally, they entrusted themselves to the Lord and to his servant Moses. Jesus wants you to entrust yourself to him and, and, this is the key, to entrust yourself to him and to his mission. What I'm arguing is that as Americans, we tend to separate those two and only focus on the nice, pretty part for me when in fact the gospel includes both of them. It's what Jesus does for me as an individual, but it's also what he allows me to participate in in taking his gospel to the nations. And so 
what I hope we can see this morning here is that Jesus wants you to entrust yourself, your life, all that you are and all that you have to him and to his mission of renewing and restoring and transforming the world. Now, as I mentioned at the very beginning, this is a, a famous story. This is a wonderful story. This is one of the most famous of all the stories in the Bible of, about God parting the Red Sea and Israel walking through on dry ground and the, the Egyptians, Pharaoh and his army, cast into the sea and drowned in the sea. It's a fascinating story. Look, walk with me through a, a, a few key points in this story. In verse number 8, at the very beginning, Israel uh, departs from Egypt where they have been enslaved at long last after the ten plagues. Pharaoh finally says, okay, you can go. Take the people and go. Get out of here. But it's not very long before he changes his mind again. But notice how it describes in verse 8, uh, towards the end of the verse, it says that Israel was going out, and the, the ESV says he was go, they were going out defiantly. Uh, literally, they were going out with an exalted hand. I think maybe a good translation of that would be that they went out vindicated. At the end of this battle between Yahweh the true God, and all of the gods of Egypt, Israel finally at long last went out vindicated. And yet, just after hearing that they were vindicated, that they went out defiantly or with the exalted hand or vindicated, just after hearing that, then we see that, we fi that they find themselves in a pickle. They find themselves in a very difficult situation. Pharaoh reconsiders releasing them he says oh what have we done how could we how could we possibly allow them to leave and so he gathers up his army he gets out all of his horses and chariots and the whole all the engine of war and he goes out and he pursues Israel and Israel then is kind of wandering around in the desert and Pharaoh's thinking they're confused. They have no idea what's going on, which is actually somewhat true. They're confused. They're not sure where they're going or how they're going to get there. Let's go get them and reclaim them. And Israel then finds herself backed up against the Red Sea. And here comes Pharaoh with all, with all of his army, with all of those chariots, with all of the, the, the apparatus of war. And as we say in Peru, Israel found herself entre la espada y la pared. Anybody know what that means? Entre la espada y la pared. It's a saying in Peru. They were between the sword and the wall. The, the Red Sea was the wall and Pharaoh's army was the sword just about to cut their heads off. So Israel then uh, cries out to God. They they grumble and complain against Moses. They say, listen, it would have been better to die in Egypt or it would have been better to stay in, as slaves to Pharaoh than to come out here. Were there not enough graves in Egypt? You had to bring us out here. So they're grumbling and complaining. Notice this is right after 
going out defiantly or going out with an exalted hand. And now they're crying and moaning and complaining. But it's precisely in this moment that we see the Lord work. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, God says to Moses, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. So God gives the instructions to Moses to raise his staff and hold his staff over the sea and that's when the waters begin to part and the dry land begins to appear. Now, We don't have time to go into details here, but one of the things that a whole bunch of the commentators point out is that we should be listening, we should be reading this text not just with our eyes but also with our ears, listening for echoes of other passages that help us understand what's going on here. Let me ask you this as a a question. When you read about God dividing the waters and causing the dry land to appear. What does that sound like to you? Have you heard something like that before? What's it sound like? Sounds like creation. It sounds like Genesis 1. And in fact, that's one of the keys to understanding this whole passage. This is about God's saving of his people, rescuing them from the clutches of of Pharaoh. But it's also about the fact that God is opening up a new door to the future. It's about new creation, which is a huge theme throughout the whole Bible. We find it all the way into the New Testament as well. When when it repeats at a number of points here that God divides the water and causes the dry land to appear and Israel goes through on dry land, when we read that, we should be hearing echoes of Genesis 1. And what that's suggesting to us is, is that God is getting ready to do something new. God is getting ready to do something glorious. God is, going, is getting ready to begin the work of a new creation. And Israel, we could say, is, is his new Adam in this new creation. In fact, Another thing to see here um, that's related to this, the New Testament picks up on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where Paul refers to the crossing of the Red Sea as a baptism. It says they were, that Israel was baptized into Moses. And the, 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 the point of all of this is to say that in this, in this new creation that God is opening up, Israel is crossing through into the new creation to be God's new Adam in this new creation, that's connected to the charge that we read about in chapter 19, verse 6, where Israel is called to be a kingdom of priests, a nation of priests. Now, I ask you this. They are supposed to be priests for whom? Priests for all the nations of the earth. The point in all of this, we don't have time to go into the details, but the point of all of this is to say that God is opening up a new creation. Israel is his new Adam, and Israel is called upon to be a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests, to minister God's goodness and his mercy and his grace to all the nations of the earth. Israel not only is rescued from 
slavery in Egypt, not only rescued from the clutches of Pharaoh, but Israel is also brought through this baptism in the sea, brought out into the new creation, and then is charged to be a part of God's mission of transforming and renewing or extending this new creation to the ends of the earth. The lesson in all of this for Israel is that Israel needs to trust in the Lord. Again, look at the very last verse in the whole chapter. Israel saw the great power, and there the word literally is the hand, the great hand of the Lord that he used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed, they trusted in him, or maybe even better, they entrusted themselves to the Lord and to his servant Moses. The lesson for Israel was to trust in the Lord and to look forward to this new world that God is opening up for them and to commit themselves to the mission of this new creation so that, so that this creation that starts as just a little bud begins to blossom and come to full flower as the grace of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. The lesson for us in this, the lesson for you in this, is that God calls you to entrust yourself to him in your darkest moments. I mean, imagine, have you ever been in a situation where you felt like Israel backed up against the Red Sea? Maybe you're in the midst of something like that now. Maybe it's a difficulty in your job. Maybe it's trouble in your marriage. Maybe it's difficulties with your health. Maybe it's difficulties with children. Or who knows what the issue is. But sometimes we feel like we are entre la, la espada y la pared. Sometimes we feel like we are between the, the sword and the wall. And we don't know what to do. This is a message to us to trust in the Lord. This is a, a message to all of those who don't know Jesus to say that you can find true salvation. You can find your rescue in exactly this person. But it doesn't stop there. It's not just about what you can receive and how your problems can be solved, though that's a crucial part of it. It's also about how he's calling you to mission. He's calling, on, he's calling you to get involved in the world around you so that the power of the new creation continues to be unleashed on this world. In, in the New Testament, one of the ways that we see so clearly this theme of the new creation and you'll have to invite me back for other sermons to talk about this, but it, the, the picture in the, in the New Testament is that the new creation, we often talk about the new creation, but we think about it as something that will begin one day in the distant future when Jesus comes back. But that's not the way the New Testament talks about it. The New Testament talks about the new creation as something that happened on Easter morning when Jesus got up from the grave, Jesus himself is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus himself 
is God's firstborn, the firstborn of the new creation. Colossians chapter 1 talks about that. The new creation was an extraordinary explosion of power that took place on the day of resurrection. Paul says to the Ephesians that that same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you so that as you get out into the neighborhood, as you help with young life, as you engage in whatever ministry it may be that the Lord has called you to, there's a certain sense in which everything that you touch will last forever. Everything you touch by faith will last forever because it will be part of that new creation. That's what he's calling us to. Let me give you some examples of of how that's taking place in Peru. And, by the way, happen to have some literature here just in case anybody wants to know more about Peru. One of the things that the new creation looks like one of the things it looked like for Israel was to go into the promised land and to begin to be the people of God, to, to build the city of God in that place. And what it looks like for us as well on, on this side of the resurrection even, what it looks like for us is that the mission of the church, your mission and mine, the mission of grace and peace is to build the city of God, to build up the people of God as a community that have a transformative effect on the world around them. In Peru, we're hard at work trying to do that very thing. In the city of Trujillo, we're planting churches there. We have medical clinics. We have a microfinance bank that's helping uh, people that are very, very needy. We have a Christian school. Uh, recently, we started a new program that is a child sponsorship program for kids that are growing up in extreme poverty, many of them chronically malnourished. Uh, both the, these kids in the sponsorship program, which is it's called Christ Kids, both the kids in that program as well as a whole bunch of the kids in, in our Geneva school are kids that are growing up in families that have almost zero knowledge of the Lord. They never go to church. They maybe hear just a little bit about the things of God in in school, in the public school, when they happen to go. But they're not churched families. And yet they come to Geneva School, which is in part part of the, the Cristo Restaurador Church or parish. And the Niños de Cristo, the, the Christ kids, come there as well. It's been fascinating to me over the past... Uh, year or so to watch these children. We've got, uh, this year we've got 115 kids in the school. We'll be adding 50 more in two, two more grades for this next year that starts in March. But these are kids that are not coming from Christian families or Christian homes, but you watch them play in the courtyard area in the school and around the church. These kids think they own the place. They will say, this is my church. And if they see Pastor Ricardo walk by, they will say, there goes my pastor. These are kids that are six, five, six, seven, eight years old. And it's the same way with the, the sponsorship program, with the Christ Kids program. Kids that have no background whatsoever, but all of a sudden they are coming, they're spending a large part of their week every, every, uh, every week 
They're spending it at the church there, and they're involved in all kinds of different activities there, and they feel like they own the place. And they say, this is my church. That is my pastor. I belong here. Now, I ask you to think about this. The, most of these kids are growing up in, in extremely difficult situations, in extreme poverty, in many cases chronic malnutrition, in most cases, there's no father in the home. In most cases, they're subject to, to violence and sickness and disease. These kids are participating in a, a, a health program through our medical clinic. They're participating in a nutritional program at the church. They're participating in an educational program where they're getting help with reading skills and uh, reading comprehension skills and math skills. And they're participating in a Bible club where they're learning about Jesus. I ask you, can you imagine what kind of, what, what difference this will make in the lives of those kids? How different will their lives be compared to the lives of their parents? Night and day. They are, are, are growing up as part of the new creation. The new creation in the, as it buds and blossoms in the city of Trujillo. But what you're doing right here in Austin is the very same thing. You don't have a pastor right now, but that doesn't mean that you sit back and twiddle your thumbs and just wait for God to send him so that he can do the work. You've got a lot of work to do right now even before your new pastor gets here because God's given you a ministry in this place, getting involved in young life or in any number of other kinds of activities and ministries. Everything you touch in faith, there's an important sense in which it'll last forever because the Holy Spirit will make it part of his new creation. This is a fun passage for me. It's fun because even as kids, we, we think about the walls of water on either side. I remember something I was going to mention. I remember when I was in a pastor in Mississippi a good many years ago, one of the older gentleman in, in our church used to like to take me out on the Mississippi River fishing. And he had years and years and decades of experience on the Mississippi River. But I remember one time when we went out and we were just in this little bitty boat and we were fishing in the middle of the river. But every time one of those big barges comes by, it, it shoots this massive amount of water. And it seemed to me like it kind of traveled along under the surface and then it would shoot up a hundred yards away or two hundred yards away. So I can remember being in, in the boat and all of a sudden, just out of the blue, a wall of water shoots up on this side, a wall of water shoots up on this side, had to have been 15 feet on either side, and we're down in the trough of this. Another time, a, a little bit later, another barge comes along and we're up on top looking down 15 feet the fellow that I was with was skilled enough. He just kept us out of trouble. And I'm thinking, um, better make sure I've got the life insurance uh, paid up and uh, get a message to my wife. I love you. <laughs> uh, a scary thing. Imagine Israel being surrounded by that. But Israel trusted in the Lord and walked through on dry ground. But Pharaoh and his army were cast into the sea.
and the Lord saved his people. But he saved them not just so that they as individuals could experience blessing and then be happy in a narcissistic heaven forever. He saved them so that they could truly know the intimacy of this relationship with God but then also so that they could be a part of this new creation, this door to the new creation that God is opening up to them. You're about to start a new phase in the life of this church when you get a a new pastor. The Lord is opening up a new door of opportunity for you. Will you walk through that door? Will you do what it says here in the last verse? Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians and they feared the Lord and they entrusted themselves to the Lord and to his servant Moses. They said, if he's with us, if the angel of God is with us and if the pillar of cloud and fire guide us, we will go and we will look forward to seeing even greater things that the Lord will do for us and with us and through us in the future. I think, I hope you can say that here. I know you can say that here as well. Say it with faith, entrusting yourself to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed to see the great power of your hand, how you did cast Pharaoh and his army, horse and rider into the sea, and how in Jesus you constantly wage the battle and are gaining the victory against the evil one, against our and his enemies. Thank you also not only for rescuing us from his clutches, but thank you, O Lord, also for making us a part of the new creation and giving us the ministry of this new creation. Help us to look forward with great expectation to the things that you're going to do in us and through us. We ask all this in Jesus' name.